Showing a wholesome film that even has a math lesson in it is getting South Korean organizers in hot water. Why? Because it's from North Korea. Not even a year into office, right-wing South Korean President Yoon is demonstrating his subservience to U.S. geostrategic goals and its anti-communist program. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We can't do the show without the people who listen to the show helping to support the show. Do your part. Go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we're talking once again with KJ No. KJ is a peace activist. He's a scholar. He's also an organizer with Pivot to Peace. He's a frequent contributor to Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. KJ No, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. KJ, it's a, I don't know, a criminal act to watch a movie, I guess, in South Korea. What's going on? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you listen to the Western corporate media, they always say North Korea prosecutes North Koreans for watching South Korean movies or South Korean dramas. But we don't know if that's true. I mean, all of that is, you know, the unreliable defector testimony of known liars like Hagyeon Mi. But on the other hand, this is clear. This is a South Korean group, an activist group, and they screened a North Korean movie. And as you pointed out, you know, it's a harmless movie. It's about family dynamics. It's about a young teenage girl trying to deal with the loss of her mother and the kind of domestic dramas that ensue from that. It even has, a, you know, a boost for math education. And because they screened this movie as part of a festival, the organizers are being prosecuted under South Korea's national security law. And let's talk about the national security law. What is it? Where did it come from? How impactful is it on free speech? Well, the South Korean national security law was written in 1948. And just to go back to the history, remember that South Korea was created as a quizzling colonial, paracolonial state by the United States because after liberation from Japanese colonization, the Koreans created their own state, and it was a social state. It was called the Korean People's Republic. The United States came in with arms, and they decided to squelch it completely, and then they put in their own puppet. This was a man called Sigmund Rhee. In 1948, he was, quote, unquote, elected as president of South Korea. And not long after, he implemented this national security law, which is essentially to squelch any opposition to his 
dictatorial regime. And, you know, we know that in the first year of the implementation of the law, 80% of all the arrests in South Korea were for violation of the NSL. So this national security law has its genesis in a kind of a dictatorial approach to preventing any challenge to this colonial regime. And it's retained its DNA to the current moment. And so, for example, there are key articles. If you praise or sympathize with North Korea, then you can go to prison for up to seven years. If you do, quote, unquote, an action which is illegal, uh, that they consider that the South Korean government considers to be under the influence of North Korea, then you can be punished with death. If you meet or correspond with anybody from North Korea, then you can go to prison for 10 years. Even if you fail to inform on somebody who you think is breaking the national security law, you could go to jail for five years. And so it's incredibly draconian. And it also includes punishment for those who possess or disseminate North Korean documents or even art, such as films. And so this is what they are applying in this prosecution. It's kind of an extraordinary violation of human rights. And it gives the lie to the kind of myth that South Korea is some kind of model democracy or that it is, you know, some kind of part of, uh, you know, an alliance of democracies with like-minded values. It's a remnant of an authoritarian dictatorial state. And it shows that South Korea still has that DNA, it retains that DNA and mindset. And we're seeing it being applied en masse in the current moment under this U.S. quizzling Yoon Sagyal regime. And I want to emphasize, KJ, that people don't actually have to be sympathizing with North Korea. Not that that should be a crime, or they don't have to be praising North Korea. Not that that should be a crime either. These right-wing, successive right-wing governments in South Korea, I mean, they've been punctuated by an occasional progressive government or liberal government. They use this against anybody who is sort of challenging their policies. And, and I think it's really, really important for people in the United States who are spoon-fed all this propaganda against North Korea, told to hate and fear North Korea because it's the the antithesis of democracy, to remember how this kind of witch hunting law, the national security law or anti-communist witch hunt impacts other people who may not even be communists, how it impacts their free speech rights. In 1949 in the United States, the U.S. government used the Smith Act to put members of the Communist Party on trial, including Benjamin Davis, who was the first African-American elected to the New York City Council. They were put on trial because the government argued that they were threatening the violent overthrow of the government. And why? Because the theories of Marx and Engels included the idea of revolution, and revolution included, at times at least, the use of force. And so even though these individuals were not recommending, not advocating, not preaching for any kind of violent overturn of the U.S. government, 
the prosecution used the writings of Marx and Engels to, to prosecute them, and they all went to prison. Now, if you know that the government is sending people to prison, not because of what they've done, but because of what they think, or because of what books they read, or in this case, in the case of Korea, what movies they watch, generally speaking, people become very, very hesitant to speak out because you don't want to get caught in that dragnet. So instead of speaking out, whatever your views are, unless they're very far right views, you just shut up. So it has an impact, a chilling impact on the ability of people to speak in all ways about all things. It is, in fact, the opposite of what we would consider to be a basic premise of democracy. Yes, it's diametrically opposed to any notion of democracy free speech, human rights, and it does have that exact effect, which is to t chill and silence dissent. And we've seen this over the decades. I mean, E.H. Carr wrote a book called What is History? People were sentenced to death for reading that book. So this gives you a sense of how South Korea has operated. And you're right, it's exactly in line with these anti-communist witch hunts that you saw in the United States, once again, they come from the same Cold War mentality. And of course, like any witch hunt in South Korea, they relied extensively on confessions obtained by torture. And we know that hundreds of thousands of people were imprisoned or actually perished under this regime. And this Yoon Seok-yeol regime is bringing these practices back. Most recently, not simply this film, which they're prosecuting the organizers of, but we spoke more recently about the truck strikers, truck soul, which essentially they were just asking for guaranteed wages so that they wouldn't have to work themselves into death or oblivion. And these truckers were also accused of being pro-North Korean or taking their orders from North Korea. And so you can see how this is a catch-all for any resistance or any challenge to the South Korean regime. Automatically, this NSL, national security law, becomes applied as a way to silence, oppress, and remove any kind of dissent or challenge. And so this shows South Korea reverting to its habits of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when it was literally one of the worst military dictatorships on the planet. So the people being prosecuted are the Jeju branch of the Progressive Party and leaders of the Jeju branch of the Federation of National Farmers Association. Jeju. People in the United States, unless you're Korean, you might not know what Jeju is. But there again, the history, again, concealed. The Americans are told, the people in the United States are told, North Korea versus South Korea is really conflated with a struggle between freedom, democracy, that's South Korea, and communist totalitarianism, that's North Korea. The people in Jeju have been struggling for social justice and for many other issues for a long time. And they were also branded because of their struggle for social justice as like almost an extension of North Korea. And in 1948, KJ, there was the Jeju massacre. I, again, 
this is undoubtedly has this huge impact on the consciousness and thinking of people on the Jeju Island. It's not small, it's big. Let's just talk about that history a little bit. Yes. Well, when the United States decided to hold elections just in South Korea, effectively splitting the country into two, there was massive protest all over Korea, and it was put down with bullets. And on Jeju Island, which traditionally had, you know, a strong socialist orientation, it comes from a matrilineal society, there was extensive and protracted protest against the government and against the splitting of the country into North and South and the holding of these illegitimate elections. And so the U.S. approach was to designate the entire island as some kind of a rebellious red province. And they initiated what we would now recognize as search and destroy and free fire zones. They turned the entire island into a free fire zone. They forced everybody who was living in the center of the island into, again, what we would recognize as strategic hamlets. They forced them out of their traditional villages, set everything on fire, and we estimate somewhere between 30 to 80,000 people were killed in these massacres. You know, once again, a precursor to the larger massacres that happened in the 1950s in South Korea. And so I think within the psyche of every Jeju inhabitant, you know, is this immeasurable pain and scarring that comes from knowing that most of your ancestors at one point were arrested, tortured, and possibly killed. And so all of this exists inside this context where the incredible violence of the state in order to create artificially a capitalist country in South Korea is now being reapplied to the citizens of Jeju and across the board, the citizens of South Korea. So if I remember correctly, KJ, and correct me if I'm wrong, that massacre of almost genocidal proportions against the people on the island of Jeju, that was 1948. The Korean War begins June 1950. The U.S. intervenes along with other allied nations. And then according to the, I looked at the Encyclopedia Britannica, the 1967 edition, I was working as the co-director of something called the International Independent Inquiry of U.S. War Crimes in Korea that took place at Riverside Church in June 2001 on the 50th anniversary of the first year of the war. And you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica says as many as 4 million Koreans died who would not have otherwise died because of that war. And when we're talking about otherwise died, means that they didn't all die from bombs and missiles, even though millions probably did, or more than a million. But they died because of famine. They died because of disease. They died because they couldn't get, you know, drinking water, clean drinking water. 4 million died. That's when you look at the proportion of what 4 million meant, 4 million dead in Korea, the entire peninsula between 1950 and 53, and the ratio of the number of dead to the population, that's a, a genocidal type war. But Jeju massacre happens right before it. 
in many ways, I've always thought of the the conflict that breaks out into the open, into open war on the peninsula in June 1950, really as an extension of what happened in Jeju. And also the South Korean government, as you mentioned, was completely under the control of the U.S. military. And was that not also the case in 1948 in Jeju? Yes, this was the U.S. Army military government in Korea. So remember, the South Korean military and the South Korean police were created by the U.S. military, and they were under the control of the U.S. military. And so we know that these kind of movements, these actions that happened, these massacres were under U.S., either under direct U.S. control or indirect U.S. control. What we do know is that Tens of thousands of police and soldiers were conscripted and were being sent to Jeju to massacre their own, you know, fellow countrymen. We know that at least several divisions rebelled and that turned into yet another battle in the south of Korea. And so I think you're correct in seeing that starting with Jeju, and actually even before that, that what we call, quote unquote, the outbreak of the Korean War was simply a long and escalating series of conflicts that had very much a genocidal character. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And then this kind of domestic genocide and politicide crested into a kind of a Cold War conflict between the United States and South Korea and China and North Korea. And so these death rates, you know, you quote 4 million. I think that's a fairly accurate, probably somewhere in the range between 4 to 5 million people died in the Korean War. Just after the Korean War broke out, there were what were called the Pordo League massacres, the League for Guidance and Education. These were leftists who had been told by the South Korean government that, that they just had to confess and register and they would be given amnesty. And instead of being given amnesty, they were all you know, dragged wholesale, lined up in front of ditches and shot or killed en masse. The Japanese government actually complained 500 miles away that their bodies, that there were Korean bodies washing up on their beaches. That gives you a sense of the level of slaughter. And we know that in South Korea, you know, anytime you do a large construction, an airport or a building, you know, a large building, a project, there's a good chance that you're going to run into mass graves that were caused by this politicide it was very, very much, South Korea is very, very much similar to Indonesia in this capitalist, quizzling, paracolonial state was created by the act of genocide and politicide. Yes, I, I've been to Korea, South Korea and North Korea several times. I would, of course, like to go more. But in the early 2000s, I think it was around 2001, prior to that International War Crimes Tribunal, the independent inquiry held at Riverside Church, I went to South and North Korea, and I went with Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. Attorney General, and a videographer, 
And we did video testimonies of older folks in South Korea and in North Korea, people who had survived the war, but who whose families had been impacted by crimes committed by U.S. and other allied occupying troops who came in and in many cases massacred whole villages, massacred refugees who were fleeing from the war zone. I mean, a lot of this has now been documented by very heroic reporters, including Associated Press reporters and others. It's kind of now in the public record, but at that time it wasn't very much in the public record. And by the way, just for you to know, KJ, and you might know this anyway, but our, for our audience, all the video testimony I was able to gather with Ramsey and the videographer in North Korea, we took those individuals who are older civilians and we asked the State Department for visas so that they could come and give testimony at the International War Crimes Tribunal at Riverside Church. And all of their visas were denied because they were North Koreans. They couldn't come to the, you know, the land of the free because they were North Koreans. So, you know, the American government doesn't want people here to hear the voices of North Koreans. Anyway, when I was in South Korea, I went to one of those mass graves. There was a mine shaft in the southern part of South Korea. 7,000, and this has been very documented by mainstream media, including in South Korea during the Kim Dae-jung period in the round 2000, 2001. He was a liberal president of South Korea. 7,000 people had been taken out of the prisons where they were being held by the South Korean military under the direction of the U.S. military at the beginning of the Korean War, and they were all taken to this mine shaft and shot, executed, mass graves. I went and saw, I was in the tunnels of the of the mine, and you kept coming upon skeletal remains from this awful massacre in 1950. But this is so much a part of Korean history. I think people in South Korea probably weren't learning that in school, and people in the United States were absolutely forbidden to learn it. Yes, you're absolutely correct. It was completely erased. And to even whisper about this type of occurrence would have been considered a crime against the national security law. People who survived these massacres, people on Jeju Island, people who survived, who had relatives who you know, were massacred by the Porto League massacres, they had to keep silent on pain of imprisonment or even death. So even the story, even the memory of these atrocities was completely erased from the books. And then slowly when Kim Dae-jung came in, he was really the first you know, progressive president in South Korea after the military dictatorships. He did a series of investigations and truth and reconciliation patterns. And they found that anywhere you turned, everywhere you went, you just saw incredible evidence of mass slaughter, mass graves. And the mine shaft that you're talking about, you know, these things happened after operational control of the South Korean military was given back to the United States. Remember, in July of 1950, the United States had complete and total operational control over South Korean troops. So when you see South Korean troops lining up thousands, tens of thousands of South Koreans that they consider to be, you know, impure, 
and you see them being slaughtered en masse, you have to understand that under the chain of military command, this was a U.S. act, that the U.S. was, they were following either U.S. orders or the U.S. was aware of this. And certainly there's ample evidence that shows that the U.S. was recording these slaughters. In fact, probably the best example of U.S. complicity is in the massacre of Taejeon, where South Koreans, they took tens of thousands of local civilians, slaughtered them. You know, there are football fields of dead bodies. And then all of this is recorded by the United States. And there is a voiceover by Humphrey Bogart. And they claim that this is the doing of North Korea. And this is the crime of Korea. This is actually a U.S. propaganda movie that you can see. But the U.S. was aware of it because it was actually recording these slaughters. And then it was using these slaughters that it and the South Korean government had perpetrated as propaganda against North Korea. KJ, the other element of this story, another important part of the story, and I want to talk about it because it sounds so awful what's happening, and it is awful what, what happened to South Korean democracy or the struggle of people for basic democratic rights. And again, there was not even a semblance of democracy. The elections came in South Korea in the 1980s, mid or late 1980s, but still the national security law didn't go away. And In 2001, when I was there on that fact-finding trip, I was also talking to people who had come out of prison. You know, they were South Koreans. They managed to survive that imprisonment, but they were in prison for, one of the guys I talked to was in prison, I think, for about 40 years, much of it in solitary confinement. He was horribly tortured. He told me everybody who was there in prison with him was tortured. It was normal. It wasn't like exceptional. And he came out and, again, he was released again during that sort of thaw during the Kim Dae-jung sort of sunshine period, 1999, 2000. The Clinton administration sent Madeleine Albright, who was at that time Secretary of State, to North Korea. It looked like maybe there was going to be a real thaw, maybe a normalization of relations. But the George W. Bush administration, when it took over in 2001, shut that down. But one of the things that really struck me was the heroism of the people in South Korea. I mean, the heroism of those who continue to follow their conscience. And one of the groups that I met with frequently, because I traveled all over the country, was students who are running. This was amazing to me. Students who are running for election in something called the Confederation of Korean Student Union or the South Korean Federation of University Student Councils. And I don't know the proper Korean word. I think it was Han Chungyan or something like that. But these young students who were 19, 20 years old, they were competing in contested elections on their campus to be elected to that student group. But by being elected to the student group, because the student group was labeled as a North Korean, a sympathizer of North Korea, Once you won the presidency in this contested election, you were basically arrested and sent to prison. So it was amazing to me, young Koreans contesting for an election, which if they were successful, would mean that they would go immediately to jail. And I talked to people who were about to go to jail or people who were just young people who were just coming from 
prison. They had been in, usually the prison sentence for that was about two or three years. They were held in very small cells, largely in solitary confinement. And I was just so struck by their determination, their level of self-sacrifice, their heroism, the sort of serene steadfastness, which really allows this progressive current in South Korea to go on and on in spite of the repression. Right. So this was the work of Han Chongyun and a lot of other groups that were sympathetic. And they understood the basic fact that in order for Korea, South Korea, to have some kind of a semblance of a normal state, that it had to fight the imperial forces that were dominating and controlling it. And that also involved allying or seeking solidarity with North Korea. And as a result of this, you know, hundreds, thousands of leaders were hounded, imprisoned, certainly tortured. And once again, this comes out of, you know, this long historical fight between, you know, Quislings and patriots, between traitors and those who sought to have some kind of an independent career. And so you're absolutely correct about the quote-unquote unreformed prisoners. You know, they were held in prison for decades. I think the longest was held probably something in the range of 44, 46 years. You know, they went in there as young men and came out old and crippled, often held for decades in solitary confinement, except for when they were beaten. And I think all of this is important to understand because, once again, we think of South Korea as some kind of model democracy when actually it has been nothing of the sort. Any semblance of quote-unquote democratic reform in South Korea has been fought tooth and nail by courageous activists such as the students you mentioned. And what we are seeing once again is a reversion, you know, to these dictatorial policies simply because that DNA has never been changed, that intrinsic structure of South Korea as a U.S. quizzling state weaponized in order to do U.S. anti-communist geostrategic policy in the Northeast. That has never changed. And what we see with the current Yoon Seok-yeol regime is that he is going, you know, completely 100% along with this U.S. agenda. As you know, the U.S. has this geostrategic agenda of containing, rolling back, and if possible, you know, starting a kinetic war with China. And Yoon Seok-yeol has, we can say largely that he was elected on his approval of the U.S. ruling class. And since his election, he has literally followed the U.S. recipe to a T. He just recently came out with what is called South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. It's literally a clone, a Xerox copy of the United States Indo-Pacific strategy to contain and roll back China. And one of these elements is to ally with Japan, its former colonizer, and to remilitarize together 
and to do exercises and to cooperate, creating essentially, you know, a single military platform with which to wage war against China. Yun Seok-yeol is going along with all of this. This is why he's throwing out the comfort woman agreement. This is why he's discarding the slave labor case that was won against the Japanese companies that forced the South Koreans into slave labor. He's throwing out all of these judgments and understandings, and he's going along wholeheartedly with following Japanese policy against China, which, as I point out, is the same thing as the U.S. policy against China. It's essentially we're seeing the recreation, the restructuring of a massive Cold War structure in Northeast Asia with South Korea and Japan as the key attack dogs of U.S. military might. You would have to sort of be able to really wrap your head, not you, KJ, but us, we, all of us, wrap our heads around what this new government in South Korea actually means in terms of geopolitics. I think you're right. I mean, just following almost to the T exactly what the U.S. hyper-aggressive strategy is towards China, if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for his being sort of a servant or a proxy for the U.S., his personal qualities as a leader are not such that he would be elevated to the highest office in the land. I mean, let's just talk about that because he's also drawing a lot of protests. Yes, there's an incredible amount of protest. To date, there have been about 23 mass protests in Seoul alone, and these protests are enormous. They draw hundreds of thousands of you know, probably the largest to date has been 500, 600,000 people protesting against the current regime. They occupy multiple blocks of eight-lane roads leading up to the center of Seoul. And they are asking for him to resign immediately. They're asking for his wife to be investigated and prosecuted for corruption and they're denouncing him for selling out the country to Japan. And they're also demanding that South Korea stop its belligerent exercises under U.S. auspices against North Korea. Their demands for actually for the U.S. military to get out of South Korea. So these are the key demands. But Yoon, as you point out, is an incredibly inexperienced and unpopular politician. Recent polls show that he has about 24% popularity, which is about the lowest you can get in among the leaders of the OECD. And he has no political experience whatsoever. He was a former prosecutor. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, he went to law school, and then he attempted to take the bar exam, which he failed nine times. Nine times he failed the bar exam. And he's somebody who's known as a walking hot mic. He's just somebody who is so gaff prone that he rarely speaks without a script. But when he ran as a candidate, he ran on a platform of misogyny. He ran on a platform of preemptive nuclear strikes 
against North Korea. He said that he would bring back a 120-hour work week, 120-hour work week. So that tells you where he stands in relationship to labor. And, you know, he squeaked by in the tightest election in Korea's electoral history. His opponent, you know, was a man who had started working in factories since the age of 12, had a primary school education, but still managed to pass and get into law school and ace the bar exam on his first try. He was disabled as a teenager when he was working in factories. person with a lot of resilience and courage and, you know, dignity and a strong popular support. But Yun won this election on a squeaker, and it's not too hard to surmise that one of the things that nudged the election in his favor was his complete and total willingness to do what the United States wanted him to do. Before he was elected, he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs magazine, which is the Journal of the Council of the Foreign Relations, which is essentially a kind of a shadow government that you know ensures that there's continuity of U.S. policy, especially Cold War policy. And he wrote this article for Foreign Affairs. And it's not an exaggeration to say that it was a complete and total plagiarism of the U.S. State Department's position for Korea, what the U.S. State Department wanted for South Korea. Yun just put it all back into, recollaged it and put it back on a silver platter and presented it back to the U.S. ruling imperial elite class. And not long after that, he was elected. It was Christmas in Washington. They were overjoyed. And in this, you know, statement, he says that South Korea will become a global pivot state, meaning it's a referral to Barack Obama's pivot to Asia, that it will be the key platform, a key, you know, weapon or tool in the U.S.'s policy of containment rollback against China. And so I believe that, you know, his obsequiousness and his obeisance to U.S. foreign policy design is what keeps him in power and probably what tipped the election in his favor in the first place. But he's receiving so much resistance, so much protest that he's resorting back to these, you know, anti-communist witch hunts. And this is what is driving terror but also resistance into the hearts of the Korean population at the current moment. KJ, obviously, as a servant or an extension of American power, he's also putting the needs of the U.S. ruling class as it embarks on this hyper-aggressive anti-China policy ahead of even not just the workers and farmers and young people who are already protesting against Yoon, but even against elements within the Korean capitalist ruling class. I'm looking at the one of the business journals. I'm going to read a couple of sentences to you from it. The top executives of Samsung Group's affiliates held an emergency meeting earlier this week to discuss potential risks in the conglomerate's flagship semiconductor business and brace for the looming 
global economic recession, according to industry officials. This is the first time in six years that Samsung gathered the top executives of all of its affiliates, although the nation's largest business group had convened such meetings with electronic affiliates in June and electronics and financial services subsidiaries in September. Samsung's electronics chairman, Lee Jae-young, was absent from the latest meeting, which took place at the Samsung Human Resources Development Institute. Lee said that the company needed to look at all of options and search for new technologies to ensure the group's survival. Now, I want to mention this because it may seem a little bit obscure. It's what's going on within the capitalist establishment, not amongst the workers, farmers, and young people. But the U.S. is at war against, you know, and trying to contain and deprive China of its continued rise in the field of technology. And again, using the issue of semiconductors as the tip of the spear, so to speak. But South Korea's economy relies on trade, not just with Japan, but also with China and others, but especially China. Is this part of the problem that is impacting Samsung? Yes, you're absolutely correct. So Samsung is one of the largest corporations in the world. Certainly, it's the largest corporation in South Korea. People sometimes refer to South Korea as the Republic of Samsung. I think that it's about 17% of Korea's GDP. And their flagship industry is electronics. And the flagship of that flagship is semiconductors or chips. And they just recently reported that they saw an 80% loss in their profits because they're trying to comply with the U.S. Chips Act, which is an attempt to enclose the semiconductor supply chain, exclude China, and essentially decouple China from the global semiconductor supply chain, which is not possible because there's so much of the manufacture and the raw materials and the assembly takes place in China. China, you know, is not the workshop of the industrial world for nothing. But the U.S. is artificially trying to separate or decouple this interconnection. And Samsung, which does a large amount of its business, probably in the range of 60% of its business in China, is seeing massive blowback, so much so that they're sending messages to their staff that they have to reduce you know, the amount of copying paper they use in their photocopy machines. That's how hard up they are. I think it's the hardest economic situation that they've faced in over a decade. But what this speaks to is the willingness of this administration, of the Yoon Seok-yeol administration, to sacrifice even their own domestic corporate champions in order to you know, do the bidding of U.S. geopolitical design. And, you know, we see echoes of this certainly in Europe, in the way that Europe is starting to deindustrialize because of U.S. demands on European corporations. And we're starting to see the same thing in Asia. So you'll see Samsung and SK Hynix and other major corporations who do most of their business with China 
start to struggle and suffer. And that will have chain effects all the way down the line and will certainly damage South Korea's economy and create even more suffering and immiseration upon South Korea's already deeply suffering working class. You know, the U.S. always puts in its national security doctrines, not simply in its economic doctrines, but also its national security doctrines, that the U.S. foreign policy is committed to what they call the principles of the free market, KJ, the principles of the free market. Well, I don't think the free market has any principles. I don't think the market is about principles. The market is about buying and selling things. But when it comes to the, quote, free market, obviously with the on the issue of semiconductors and this kind of gangsterism where South Korea and others are punished if they do business, sell their products, sell their products on the free market to China, which can buy their products on the free market, it shows that the free market is really just a banner. It's a slogan. It's BS. In fact, the U.S. just wants to dominate the world market, call it the free market, because everything the U.S. does is conflated with freedom. The U.S. remains undoubtedly the world's you know, most significant leader in semiconductor design. It controls about 85% of the world market for what's called electronic design automation, EDA which are tools necessary for the design of most advanced chips. And the advanced chips are the key to the rest of the, the rest of all of the technologies that we now take for granted. But it's a kind of, well, it's not kind of, it is gangsterism. And here you have a South Korean proxy government, an extension of American military power, and now military and economic power go hand in hand, just two sides or different sides of the same coin. And as a consequence, the interests of people in Korea, the workers, the farmers, the students, but even its own business establishment being sacrificed at the altar of the U.S. empire. Yes, this shows you not only how desperate, but how extreme these measures that are being taken against China. South Korea is expected to sacrifice itself for U.S. interests, just as Europe is expected to do so. And South Korea is expected to sacrifice its own business interests, you know, by throwing its companies, you know, on the tracks. And so if we look at the U.S. CHIPS Act, this is the Semiconductor Enclosure Act, or quote unquote, they refer to it supply chain resilience, essentially decoupling or excluding China from the global electronic semiconductor supply chain, it says that not only are sales to be forbidden to China, high-end chips, the sales of high-end chips, but also the sale of etching equipment and the sale of design equipment and anything that has any technology any equipment that has any technology that is made in the United States is automatically subject to bans. So we're seeing secondary bans. And then any U.S. citizens who are involved in the chip industry have to you know, stop working for Chinese corporations or they will lose their U.S. citizenship. So the level of this you know, strong arming, as you call it, gangsterism is quite extraordinary. And it's absolutely correct. It goes against even, you know, the kind of diminished principles of free markets that the U.S. likes to, you know, tout and proclaim. There's no 
no longer even any pretension that they're trying to do anything related to free trade and free markets. We're looking at pure mercantilism, pure protectionism, pure economic gangsterism, the sheer attempt not to compete, but to simply to kneecap China and China's industry by any means necessary. This is where we're at right now. And once again, anybody who is aligned with the United States, Korea, Japan, the European nations, all of these countries as paracolonial states are seeing their own interests being snuffed out as the U.S. continues in its policies against China. It reminds me of that line from Henry Kissinger, you know, to be an enemy of the United States is dangerous. To be an ally of the United States is deadly. Today we were talking with KJ No. KJ is a peace activist. He's an organizer with Pivot to Peace. He's a scholar on the geopolitics of Asia, and he is a frequent contributor to Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 